Uh, we're starting a new series this morning. Uh, you might be, woo, you might be, eh. We've kind of been these last few weeks of just one at a time at a time at a time. And part of that was from our creative planning team meeting when we said, well, we, we don't know what our timeline is going to be. We don't want to get started into a series um, and then just have to, like, take a week off or not. To, this is months ago. Um, but God laid something on my heart this week. And rather than just the uh, kind of sermon message, sermon message with no um, segue, uh, we're going to start a new series. You see what it's called, right? The Sermon. A r- brilliant title, I know. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. But today is the first Sunday of a five-part series. I don't care whether we're here or somewhere else. This is what God's laid on my heart, and I hope you join me for the journey. We're going to take a five-part series to look into what's called the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And last week, we shared a Barna study whose findings revealed that 61% of Americans, American Christians, rather, think the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Reverend Billy Graham. That's, that's a real statistic. People think the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. And it wasn't, if you know this. It was preached by Jesus about 2,000-something years ago. And I've gone as far back as I can in our church resource tool called Planning Center, which helps us coordinate all of our songs and worship flow and, and, and what's going on. And I can't find, doesn't mean it didn't happen in years past, but I can't find any message or series talking through the Sermon on the Mount. We've hit on small pieces of this scripture in the last six months, but not like a giant chunk. And this is important. So we're going to take a giant chunk of the next few weeks and really dive through this sermon. Jesus said a lot of recorded things. A lot of things have been written down in the Gospels, teachings and parables. But this is Jesus' sermon. We often call Jesus a teacher and a preacher. This is his sermon. So that's why it's called the sermon. One, all of our messages kind of echo this or should be since then. So we're going to be starting right into this in Matthew chapter 5. And to set the tone, if you want to turn there, Jesus was healing a lot of people in Galilee before this. And they were coming from all over Syria. Probably thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people are following Jesus around, getting healed and believing who Jesus is. It says in the paragraph right before, at the end of chapter 4, before we start uh, chapter 5, that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Not some of the diseases, but every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. He doesn't say most of them. He healed them. Every, all. This is unanimous. This is what Jesus can do. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So we know there's a lot of people following Jesus around right now. It's not just the disciples, not just the twelve, but thousands of probably people are following Jesus around, wanting insta-cure, wanting insta-food, they find out later, from the bread and the loaves. And so Jesus goes and sits on the side of a mountain, almost to escape the thousands of people, and he begins teaching his disciples. This section that we're going to be reading through today, the first part of these five weeks, is called the Beatitude. Now, what's a Beatitude? 
It's not a be attitude. It's a different spelling. The beatitude, the word, means supreme blessedness. And it comes from the Latin word for blessed, which is beatus or beatitudo for the conjugations. Beatitudes aren't things we think of often. Uh, we don't talk about them. Uh, well, not much anymore. And we have a picture here. Lisa, put up that first picture. I want to see if we can tell. Yeah, this. What is this? What is a graph? I kind of think it's like an outline of like the Grand Canyons or someplace in Arizona or Nevada. You see like there's the ground at the bottom and maybe some mountain. It's a graph. Fun graph. Let's actually see what it means. Here's what that really is. And th- if you don't know, uh, when you're in Google and you look up a word, you can actually also expand it and it looks in milliseconds to find how often that word is found in our culture and it searches books and online. And on the left side of your screen is the year 1800, okay? And that goes all the way through to today. And this is the word, word usage of beatitude in our culture. And if you notice, right around 1965, almost to the year, and then it goes, whoo, kind of dwindles down to where we're at today. We don't talk about this a lot much anymore. Theologians aren't writing about this anymore. You know, they're, they're writing about prosperity gospel and maybe not as deep things. This is Jesus' sermon. So this is, we don't use this word anymore. And this is where Jesus' sermon starts. So I want us to know this. We should know this, that the Sermon on the Mount wasn't preached by Billy Graham. So we're going to dive into this. I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have been, like Blake said, made aware of the shootings this past week at Umpqua Community College in Oregon. Nine people were killed by the shooter and nine injured. I even put a picture up there in case you don't know who these real people were. An article in the New York Post stated the following, but you might not have heard this, and it's not plastered all over the news. Media focuses on other things. This is why we sent our kids out. The gunmen singled out Christians. You guys know this? Telling them that they would see God in one second during a rampage in an Oregon college Thursday that left at least nine innocent people dead and several more wounded survivors and authorities said. This is the article from the New York Post. He started asking people one by one what their religion was. Are you a Christian? He would ask them. And if you're a Christian, stand up. And they would stand up and he said, good. Because you're a Christian, you're going to see God in just about one second. And then he shot and killed him. And then he shot and killed them. Because of that. Stacy Boland, whose daughter was wounded at Umpqua Community College in Roseburg, Oregon. This is what she told CNN. A Twitter user named Body Hooli. Hooli. It's Twitter handle, I don't know. can't say it. But who said her grandmother was at the scene of the carnage, tweeted that if victims said they were Christian... They were shot in the head. If they said no or didn't answer, they were shot in the legs. Gunman Chris Harper Mercer's disdain for religion was evident in an online profile in which he became the member of a doesn't-like-organized-religion group on an internet dating site. The killer owned 14 guns and was carrying four of them, three pistols and a rifle, a source told CNN. President Obama issued a plea for greater gun control and bemoaned that America is, quote, the only advanced country on earth 
that sees this kind of mass shooting every few months. The attack brought the number of mass shootings in the nation this year to 294. According to the, apparently there's a mass shootings tracker. The website defines mass shootings as incidents in which four or more people are killed or injured by gunfire. 294. Now, I do not like to get political, so don't think that what I'm getting ready to say is me political. It has nothing to do with lean or slant or left or right. But the comment made by our president, regardless of party affiliation, is completely off the mark. The problem isn't greater gun control, but the motives and the heart that owns them. It's the attitude that affects the outcome. In Star Wars, no one blames the lightsaber. I saw that on a meme. It cracked me up. (laughs) But for a sermon, you know, I wasn't sure what to do this morning. I mean, what words could I possibly say in hard times like this when things just don't make sense? when sin seems to run rampant, when it feels like the battle for our faith sometimes is being lost. And so I thought and prayed, and I realized once again, since being put in this position of leadership the past six months, that it's never been about my words. It's not about yours. Jesus has already said and done everything that needs to be said and done. And so just like we talked about with Paul the last few weeks, In 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, I'm not going to stand here in any authority other than knowing Jesus and Him crucified. I can't. I'm imperfect. I could be a better husband, a better friend, a better Christ follower, a better pastor, a better singer, a better leader, and the list goes on. And I'm going to keep trying to. But hopefully today I'm not alone in the list of imperfections. You all Hopefully you realize you have your own too. We can get better. But it starts with the heart. And it's not a coincidence that this is where Jesus' sermon starts. It starts with our hearts, with our attitudes. The Beatitudes, the supreme blessings, begin with Jesus just pulling his disciples aside. This wasn't a for everyone talk at first. You know this. It wasn't blasted on megaphones or or shouted. It was spoken, maybe even quietly. We know its purpose because of the way it was taught. History lesson. Yay! See, even back in ancient times, they knew about acoustics or how sound works and travels. Both the Greeks and the ancient Romans built amphitheaters for large public gatherings, drama, speeches, or entertainment. Now, amphitheaters have the speaker at the bottom, kind of like a semicircle, and the audience goes up on the sides. The Romans improved on this and put two semicircles together to make circles, full circles or ovals. And the design has stayed and really becomes our modern ballparks and stadium seating. The ancient Greeks, Romans, and Hebrews knew all about the benefits of stadium seating millennia before it was incorporated into our construction. But here we see the opposite of that not Jesus down low preaching up. It's Jesus up high preaching down low. And you can't hear nearly as well that way. Jesus would have known this. 
rather than being in a valley or at the bottom of a hill or anything with an amphitheater-like quality, he goes up. He ascends a mountain, a horrible public speaking location. But that's also what tells us its purpose. Jesus ascending this mountain and imparting wisdom is the groundwork of what becomes a stereotype. Go up for knowledge, right? Climb the mountain to get to the Dalai Lama and all these cartoons. Monks in the Middle Ages building monasteries as high as they can and mountain ranges. And what begins with the Beatitude becomes a sermon actually completely directed at those already following Jesus, his disciples. And if we're going to call ourselves his disciples, we have to begin where he does, with the heart and our attitudes. So if you have your Bibles, you want to follow along. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when he saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Not everyone, not the masses, not the thousands. He began to teach the disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Sounds like organ. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're going to break down these eight beatitudes. Some argue ten, some say nine because of where he finishes up. But I think it's eight. Persecution, he just continues. We're going to break down these eight Beatitudes this morning into modern, simple terms. If this is complicated for you, we're going to hopefully simplify. The first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And this should be our heart concern this morning, these eight things. See, where there's less of you, there can be more God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Where there's less you, there can be more of God. That's why in John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist, not why the book is called John, uh, he, Jesus, he's talking about, he must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the Son of God, and if people kept following John the Baptist, they wouldn't get to know Jesus A lot of us have a lot of us in our lives. But are we trying to eliminate self in our living? Are we selfish or selfless? The first beatitude reminds us that we are blessed when we have less of us and more of God in our lives. The second one, blessed 
are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We've all experienced loss or sadness in our lives, and depending on how old we are, loss could be our best friend moving away, or a family pet dying, or the death of a loved one, or a son or daughter, brother or sister. It could be the sadness of a loss of a job or feeling like there's nowhere else to turn. When we experience loss or sadness or mourning, it's hard to say, but we are blessed. That's a hard concept for us to get our brains around, but it's true. God can make our sadness into joy. God can comfort more than any human being possibly can. Our spirits can find peace in the midst of heartache. Though the loss of those killed in Oregon shooting can be heartbreaking, God is in the business of heart mending. And it is a blessing that some of those killed are just as much a martyr for their faith as the Christians killed in Roman Colosseum thousands of years ago. Here are a few synonyms for the word meek, humble, compliant, yielding, obedient, non-resistant. These are the people Jesus says will inherit the earth. Being obedient to God is not a punishment. Not resisting His will doesn't mean you give up yours. Your free will then becomes the choice to do His will. And that's our usual power struggle, not wanting to submit. We get this paradigm in our brains that surrendering is bad, obedience is bad, compliance is bad. We remember Pearl Harbor and 9-11, and we think, never surrender. And if you're a historian, you might hear Winston Churchill's infamous speech in the Battle of Britain. We will fight them on the hills and on the streets. We shall never surrender. Right? Pretty, yeah, I've been working, <clears throat> working on my Winston. We see comeback wins in sports like the UF win last week over Tennessee in the last minute. And we train ourselves. Never give up. Never give in. Never surrender. And that anyone who wants us to is bad, evil. We spend so much time and that mentality that we make it hard on ourselves and our theology. You see, obedience to God doesn't mean enslavement. It means freedom. Imagine an America where God's will was done. From the heads of our government to our schools, from our military to our post office. If that was the case, there would be no shootings in Oregon if God's will was done. There would be no shootings at a church Bible study in Alabama. No 294 mass shootings this year. There would be no hands up, don't shoot movement. Just a hands out, I died for your sins movement. A world, a nation, a state, a county, a community that lives out that obedience, that humility, that meekness 
starts with you and with me. When we are meek, yielding to God, we are blessed. Next one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. If you are here this morning or listening to this online, you are probably aware that hungering and thirsting, you're probably aware of that. That's why hopefully you're here, wanting more of God. You know that there's more to this life than meets the eye, a deep, unexplainable truth, a spiritual yearning to be with our Creator. Jesus made a way for that to happen, just like the body and bread and communion where we talked about Jesus being broken and poured out for us a few weeks ago. We who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And our hunger, our dry and desert times, we are blessed when we seek His kingdom and righteousness. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we're going to talk about it in week four and five. So I want to keep moving. The next one. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. I think this one is fairly simple, at least the way I read it. You reap what you sow. If you are merciful, you will be shown mercy. Now, some people like to call this karma. No, its roots are biblical, not Hindu or Buddhist, which date their earliest writings to around 700 BC, but biblical roots to the fall of man in the Garden of Eden before 4000 BC. Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of their garden. Their son Cain killed his brother Abel and he was banished. How we treat others matters. How we treat our husbands and wives, sons and daughters, friends and co-workers. Be merciful in the way you live your life. And you will be shown mercy. You will be blessed. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. I don't know about you, but I want to see more of God. I want to see more of Him revealed in our world to the people who are far from Him. I want to see more of Him when I look in the mirror. I want to see His plans come to fruition. You might share those feelings, but that can only happen when we are pure in heart. When we take the time to let God clean up our insides, God can be revealed and our outsides. The heart matters. It's our motives, being pure in heart, our reasons for doing what we do. Our hearts are the key to a heavenly door. When we make sure we have the right key, we can open that door and see God. The purity of our hearts are important to God. And when our hearts are pure before the Lord... What a blessing that is. The next one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Funny thing, when you do a Google search for peacemaker, two big things pop up. The first one is a 1997 movie with George Clooney. The second is a Colt revolver handgun. The peacemaker, right? It's kind of sad that these are the top things that are found with this search for peacemaker. Wherever you find yourself, I hope we're not that kind of peacemaker. It could be in a marital argument, 
between friends trying to break up a fight with your kids or settling a dispute with your coworkers. It doesn't matter. Be a peacemaker. This is probably my hardest beatitude to get right. I'll go ahead and dive off of that one-way trip board. Uh, I have a twin sister, Amelia. She's been here before, and you may or may not know that my wife Lisa is a twin sister. So she has a twin brother, fraternal biological twin brother. No, they're not identical. That's a different thing. We've had to answer these questions, both her and I, all growing up. Does she look like you? No. She has a twin brother. I have a twin sister. Peacemaking. This is probably, yeah. Let's just say my sister and I, long before I was married, perfected the art of verbal warfare growing up. I'm very good. I'm like a sniper. I'm just like, I know where, uh, there's the button there. (laughs) Ooh, watch it hurt. I'm really bad about that. Being married to another twin and Lisa in the past seven years has only compounded the argumental possibilities. They're virtually limitless. Hooray! Too many times I have found myself having a hard time being a peacemaker. Lisa craves this thing called resolution. Women, anyone? So do I, guys, just in the form of 1080p and 7.1 digital surround sound. That's my resolution. I'm like, ha, 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 resolution. She's like, no. So God's still working on me. Hopefully, he's working on you, too. And as hard as it may be, one of these other Beatitudes may be, and you're like, yeah, that's mine. Uh, I have a really hard time treating others the way I, I would treat myself. I have a really hard time having less of me in my life. I have a really hard time being meek and being obedient to God. That might be one of your other, I need to work on that this week. But for me, it's a peacemaker. I just want to share that. We're not perfect. But God says... Blessed are the peacemakers. Strive to be a peacemaker, for they will be called sons of God. And that, my friends, is a blessing. The eighth one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I spoke about earlier, I was really thinking about this one with the organ shooting. Persecution of Christianity has been going on for thousands of years. It's a sad realization, but... This is nothing new. Jesus tells us that. We are blessed when we take a stand for him. For people had persecuted prophets before that time too. Persecution of the Christians was in its golden era with the catacombs and Colosseum killings of ancient Rome as it hunted down and martyred believers in the way, which is what early Christianity was called. It's even called that in the Acts and other things. But all but one of the original disciples were killed. Did you know that? All but one. And John, the one that lived, survived boiling in oil and lifetime imprisonment on the Isle of Patmos. Woohoo! Fantastic. Yeah, we'd want that, right? Paul was killed in Rome not long after he wrote the letters to the churches we've read for the last two weeks. The Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther were persecuted. Missionaries around the globe have been persecuted and killed in places like China in the 1930s. Through today, tribes in Africa and communist countries. Anyone know the name Eric Little? He's a runner in the 1936 Olympics for Britain. Chariots of Fire movie, 1980-something. Yeah, true story. 
if you watch that all the way to the end, and it's, it might be hard for you to do, it's not a, you know, eyebrow razor or anything, but it's true. You get to the end, you find out that Eric Little gave up Olympic running to go be a missionary in China where he was killed. Persecution of the Christians is nothing new. And we pretend like it is. Like Stephen Colbert said on the Tonight Show when he replaced David Letterman talking about these. Like, I can't pretend this didn't happen. We're not going to not talk about this and just kind of brush it under our social rug. We can't, as Christians, pretend that persecution doesn't happen. Now we live in a country in which we will find ourselves persecuted more and more in our own backyards, though. In the midst of this, Jesus says, take comfort in the fact. Take comfort when this happens, because you are blessed. Jesus even tells us to rejoice and be glad. It's not the worldly response. But we see that lived out in Paul. He's broken out of prison. He was in prison. But what was Paul doing in prison? Singing and praising. And the guards couldn't explain how he got out. Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 tells us that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. You see, righteousness, proper living before God, is an offense to people who live for the flesh, for the world, for Satan. True, holy living by the children of God, by us, convicts those who live for themselves. See, it's not a question of if, but when we will be persecuted for our faith. When that happens, stand up for Jesus, like the hymn, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Old throwback, you may not know it. Stand up for Jesus, and you will be blessed. Though I don't usually do this, I want us to close hearing these few verses again, but from the message version. If you don't know, the message version is a modern kind of word explanation of the Bible. It's in a story-based format without really verses and, and chapters. But I want to finish up reading the Beatitudes from the message. And I hope that in some way this is a phrase that will sink in, maybe in a different way for you than it has so far. And this is what it says. Again, words of Jesus paraphrased for modern language. And it's just called, You're Blessed. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's the food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. 
You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. But persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourself as blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though you, they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. And this corny phrase with no accredited author is so true. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And it's found its way into a few songs here and there, but no one knows for sure where it came from. The sermon, Jesus' words, begins with the heart. Our attitudes, the way we operate our lives. Without looking inward, we can't possibly solve outward. Without getting the plank out of our own eye, we can't get the speck out of someone else's. And that's for later in this sermon, chapter 7, verse 3, so we'll cover that when we get there. But if we begin with our heart, our heart can begin to help others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word for us this morning. As we study these beatitudes, these ways of Christian living, the matters of the heart that are so important to us and to you. God, draw us deeper into your word. May there be that less us and more you in our lives. May we find ourselves meek, humble, and obedient, and yielding before the God of the universe. May we strive to be the peacemakers, the ones who end conflict instead of create it. May we hunger and thirst for more of you in our lives. God, in the midst of our sadness, those of us who may be mourning, may we find comfort in the Prince of Peace. God, and when we are persecuted, for your name's sake, And so we thank you for your word, your sermon. And just like you preached it from the mountaintop, may we strive to ascend to where you are, to approach your throne, to be the inner click of those who are privy to the deep knowledge, the committed, the disciples. May we live this out in our lives. Give us that pure heart to effect change for your purpose in our world. In your name we pray. God's people said.